5: let's talk about myths baby i don't know why i said it like that i am your host liv and here i am with a quick bonus episode just answering your lingering questions about the spartans and my series on those fascinating weirdos i have been writing like fourteen thousand words of the thesmophoria zoosai scripts for the last four days and we all heard how that went so uh my brain cannot come up with anything more exciting for this bonus episode introduction let's dive right the fuck into the questions shall we The bonus episode, answering those lingering Spartan questions. First up is from Greg, and they say... Hi, Liv. First of all, love your podcast. It is absolutely fantastic. And I got super excited when you started talking about ancient Sparta. Thank you. Second, I wanted to ask for some advice. Last year, I was inspired to write a book about Apollo and Hyacinthus, and I wanted to ask if you had any advice when it comes to writing about ancient civilizations and mythical people. I don't want to sound like an idiot if slash when I write this and you seemed like the right person to ask. Thanks a bunch for everything you do. Thank you, Greg. That's a great question. I I don't know if I have any... Um, any advice and that's only because like as much as I'm I mean I'm uh, completely immersed in the mythology and I know it like the back of my hand and the ancient world pretty well but as I've talked about in past QA episodes I have also been writing a novel for the last like literally literally 15 years and I can never finish it because I think that when it comes to fiction I am garbage I'm still working on it it's fine but it just means that I feel like when it comes to insights on fiction, I am just such an enormous <laughs> failure. So I would say instead, like, read as much mythological fiction retellings as you can. There, there are new ones coming out absolutely constantly. And personally, I think an Apollo and Hyacinthus book would be so lovely. So number one, read The Song of Achilles because, like, there's your inspiration. It's such a good example. It's such a good book. And, and I think you could take a lot from that. But I also just generally hope that that book comes into being because that's a story that should totally be told, like maybe less tragic. No Frisbee tragedy. Can you cut that part out? Or like, I don't know. We want a happy ending. No, no relationships between men in Greek mythology end happily. And I would love for one to end happily. <laughs> Good luck next up is from john who says i've been listening to your sparta series while baking and was surprised to learn about the spartan mirage and how they've been misrepresented over time you brought up 300 as an example and there are certainly others but that caught me thinking about assassin's creed odyssey well you know the way to get me to answer a question john <laughs> the assassin's creed games have a history of putting a lot of research into their settings and that definitely shows in odyssey but a significant portion of the game takes place in sparta they even decided to make the protagonist cassandra spartan by birth not to mention they actually let you play Leonidas in the opening based on what you've learned from this series how accurately would you say odyssey portrays sparta do they manage to get it right or would you say that they fall victim to the mirage as well or is it a bit of both so that is a great question and gods know i will always take any opportunity to talk about assassin's creed odyssey like literally it's all that i want to do ever um and i there's are handling a sparta is really interesting in a lot of ways like for one I do think it definitely falls into the Spartan mirage but I would say it's that part of the mirage that the Spartans created for themselves and so while not like faultless it is interesting you know like it, it because the game opens like for those who haven't played the game the very opening is that you play as Leonidas fighting some Persians at Thermopylae and that's just like basically give you an introduction into combat and the game itself it's really simple and it it ends pretty quickly and then you play as your main character the primary one being cassandra but you can also pick a dude if you're so inclined but he's obnoxious um and cassandra is a spartan but she doesn't she's been like almost exiled from sparta and it is really interesting because i think that it's it's almost nice to get that spartan side of things if only because like so much of what we know is from Athens that it's nice to not have it be, you know, I mean, it is like just as much about Athens, but at the same time, like your character is at least Spartan. But I do think it definitely falls under the mirage. And one of the big complaints that I think is really important to talk about is that Odyssey does not handle the Helots very well. It really, like, it, it's really not on the side of the Helots, which is disappointing. It does not emphasize the enslavement aspect like it talks about it. It it they're there, but like they really should have done more to emphasize just how horrific the practice of the enslavement of the helots was. I think broadly they really really glaze over the idea that ancient Greece had slaves at all and, you know, maybe they have their reasons for that, but I do think it could have served them to have a bit more honesty in that respect. There's a couple storylines like not even totally related to Sparta that are really weirdly problematic on ancient enslavement. Like one enslaved guy who like doesn't want to be freed and like things like that. There's some really, really weird stuff when it comes to how they handle enslavement broadly. But my own personal complaint is that like they really should have emphasized the Helot issue better um, in that game. That said, I think, like, the Sparta that they show us is still based in some kinds of, of real history, like what little we do know. It's nice that they have the whole dual kings thing. Um, you know, we there's a lot to do with Sparta. They make note of, like, a lot of their um, temples and stuff are built it by with wood, which is really interesting because that's, like, another additional piece because they really didn't build lasting structures in Sparta. That's why we don't have much in the way of Spartan ruins. And it's it's interesting that they then like kind of mirrored that in Odyssey, made it pretty clear what's, you know, what would have been there and everything. So I do generally like it. Like, I also just think that we can appreciate the game for what it is. It's pretty damned historically accurate, especially visually Because the visuals on Odyssey are really amazing in terms of understanding how colorful the ancient world would have been, polychromy broadly, this idea that they had everything painted. There were no, like, plain marble statues. That was boring. They had everything painted and it would have just been so colorful and beautiful. Um, And so just, you know... I'm not ragging on Odyssey, but I also definitely think they could have handled enslavement better broadly and very, very specifically in Sparta. Like, I think there's a whole storyline where you basically put down a Helot uprising. And like, while I understand why it's necessary for the story, there is not enough morality introduced on the other side. Like, there is not enough talk about how horrific the Helot practice was in Sparta. That should have been way more obvious in front and center in that game. All right, that was a great question. Thank you for asking it. I love talking about Odyssey. Next up is from Jess, and she says... A question, perhaps more to come. I will try not to spam you for your Sparta series. How did the term Spartan come to mean sparse, minimalistic, simple when it comes to lifestyle things, furnishings, etc.? Or does it mean something else entirely? And I've been misinterpreting it my whole life. Thanks so much. Love the podcast and I love your take on things. Thank you. I am going to answer this question without looking it up because I want to. And I think that I know the answer. And if I'm wrong, I am sorry. But I think you're I I don't think you're wrong. It definitely comes from Sparta, Sparta as a place and Spartan people. And I think what it is, though, is uh, goes back to this mirage idea, this idea that they were kind of that they were not all about the like showier aspects of ancient Greece, that they were really just you know, they, they were very structured and linear and everything was just so and everything had to be in its place and simple and just like it was all about, you know, being Spartan, being all about the military, keeping up appearances, things like that. So I think that while we can't, it's not like a direct link to say like, oh, the Spartans were minimalistic. Like, I mean, I think that the, the idea still stands, it's just that it has, you know, grown into this more modern idea, but it definitely comes from that idea of structure and linearity and just like sort of straight into the point nature of of Sparta. But again, I think that that comes from the mirage, not actually Sparta, where they love to sing and dance and do all this stuff. I think that it comes from that, that Spartan mirage that they were, that they presented to the outside world. That they were just like, you know, very, very strict and very proper and conservative and which they were, but, you know, they had other things kind of going on. I hope that makes sense. It was an interesting question. I'm glad you asked it because it, it is a word that, you know, we don't see the obvious connections, um, but it is from from Sparta. And next is from Teresa, who says, when you refer to Sparta's revitalization and its theme park era, I'm imagining something similar to a Renaissance fair. I love going to Ren Fairs and dressing up in medieval costumes, fully aware that they are not historically accurate. Is this a similar situation? Um, Like, yes and no. I think that, like, Rome kind of wanted, treated it. Had, that, that's what I'll say. I think Rome treated it as a similar situation, but I think on a practical uh from a practical standpoint they were actually living like that to an extent it's just that it was like intentionally done so where a ren Faire is all kind of cosplay and people don't actually live in that world the spartans of that time were actually living in that but it was really intentionally created to mirror the Sparta of old. So it's a little bit of both, if that if that does make sense, like a combination of things created to to remind Sparta and, and the Romans visiting of this, you know, impressive mythic ancient Sparta. But at the same time, it was a, still a real place where people lived. It's just that I think it became a tourist attraction as that place. So people are still living in it. That is still their lives. But in itself, it is also a tourist attraction for the wider Roman people, empire, I think, by that time.
0: This is it. Your moment.
5: Next up from Maisie who says, would the myth of Theseus stealing Helen have affected the way the Athenians and Spartans saw each other or added to their rivalry? I'm very glad you asked that because yes, absolutely. So one thing that we have to remember is chronology. And I don't mean chronology within the mythology because that's impossible and you don't want to think about it, but I mean chronology in terms of when the stories are being developed. So, What I mean by that is the Trojan War and Helen are some of the oldest, if not the oldest myths that we have from the ancient Greek world, right? So they are it. They are the oldest, the first, maybe not the first, but in in our heads, they're the first because we have nothing older. Theseus, meanwhile, comes in when Athens is growing in stature and importance, which is hundreds, I mean, at least a couple hundred years after the Iliad and the Odyssey, so after the idea of the Trojan War. So Theseus, specifically his connection to Helen, is kind of a retcon of mythology, right? It is Athens coming in, you know, they're gaining prominence, they're gaining importance, and they're trying to then write that importance into the mythic history of their culture. They're trying to insert their own... Founding hero, their big heroic character, they're trying to write him into the history of the Greek world. So, while the Iliad is the history of the Greek world as they saw it, mythological history, but they understood it to be kind of like mythic and historical at the same time. And it was important across the whole of the Greek world, it shaped them as a culture, even though they are, you know, all these different city states. Fighting each other, not th- having things in common, not having things in common. Like the one main thing that they all had in common, even if they were not at all, even a tiny bit unified, they all had the Homeric texts, the Homeric stories, rather, in common. And so Athens is trying to insert themselves into that to make themselves more important historically than they actually were. So they you know, when they're creating these stories of Theseus. And I would say creating, I say that broadly because no one's doing it necessarily on purpose, but there is still that underlying um, need to put yourselves into the mythic history. So whoever is coming up with these stories, you know, all of the oral storytelling involved, that that is still ultimately what's going on there. And so by having their hero, Theseus, involved with Helen long before she ever goes to Troy they're creating this storyline where where Athens has always been so important where Theseus has always been able to to like handle Sparta to to fight with Sparta that said I mean obviously Sparta wins which is sort of interesting in itself but they had to have Sparta win and get Helen back because Helen has to then go to Troy you know so it's almost not even a loss for Athens because it's all it's more like Well, Theseus had this girl first, and then she went on to become the Helen, you know, that we all know from from Homer. And so it's really fascinating in that respect. But but in a more direct reference to what you're asking, like, yes, it definitely contributed to their rivalry. Um, I'm sure that it was, you know, an important story when it came to the Peloponnesian War. It, It generally like it's it's almost like the the a mythic version of their rivalry, a mythic introduction of why they are always fighting with each other, like instead of it just being that these two city-states are always fighting with each other, always at war, they as people are able to look back and say like, well, you know, it all started when Theseus went and kidnapped Helen, right? It's it's utterly fascinating. Again, I'm thrilled you answered that question because it is it is both mythological and historical and like really really interesting way of looking at how these stories are developed when what the you know intentions are not necessarily you know somebody really consciously thinking about the intentions but what the underlying intentions are of these stories it's a really really great simple example of just like kind of how all of these things played out and I love it clearly I could talk about it forever but I'm going to stop now thank you. All right, this next one is from Connor, who says, Sparta series question. My apologies for being so American here, but I wanted a little more context on how Sparta was viewed in the later Roman years. You said we should not conceptualize it as a theme park, so I was wondering if it would be more accurate to view Sparta as the ti- this time as a version as a of a colonial Williamsburg, a city in Virginia here in the U.S., where historical reenactors display what life was like uh, in the past. And sorry, I'm running over this question. The complete... It- costumes blah 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 yes um or should we think of sparta as comparable to a small town in the modern era which maintains historical industry for tourism but does not have historical reenactment so while i don't know for sure because i think it's not entirely clear um i'm not i mean there there are people who i'm sure have better answers to this but from what i understand like i was saying at the top when it came to a ren fair which you're this is a great other example of, of kind of like what what that could look like, but I think it's more the latter. So I would, I would picture it more as yes, like a, a a town that maintains its history, you know, for tourism reasons or, or just like recognizes that, that their mythic history, their, their, their history broadly is what makes them important and puts them on the map and, and, you know, probably keeps them, you know, having enough money from the Romans and blah, 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 all of those things. So yeah, I think I understand it, that it was still a place where people lived. It was just like a shell of itself that was more about the tourism than it was about anything else. So I think that that, yeah, the latter is a great example probably of of how it actually was in that time. And the last question is from John. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's very long, but we'll get to sort of the premise of it. And And John says... I've brought this up on Instagram before, so maybe you're sick of hearing about it, but I felt like it would be a good thing to ask about. And I'm glad you put it in here so that I can talk about it in the episode. Thank you. Um, They say, I've been listening to the Sparta series and I was intrigued by just how mythologized the Battle of Thermopylae was. But what weirdly stood out to me was the whole mythologization process reminded me of another famous battle that went through a similar process, the Battle of the Alamo. So I'm not going to read this whole next paragraph, but basically the idea being an explanation of of the Battle of the Alamo and this idea that it also became a kind of mythologized moment, kind of like America's Thermopylae. Um, and then uh, John goes on to add the parallels between these two events seem uncanny. It's strange given they happen at least a thousand years apart in different countries, but I can't help wondering if the... Rom- romanticization of the Alamo is a similar phenomenon to what we s- saw with Thermopylae, or even if it was influenced by Thermopylae at some level. And if there are maybe other famous battles where a losing side is similarly turned into a winner for propagandistic purposes. Um, so this is fascinating because it absolutely is true. Like based on how you describe it, um, it does seem like they are very similar and they have these like really similar aspects. It's super interesting. Unfortunately, I don't really have anything to add to that because I don't give a absolute flying fuck about American history. I will not lie. Um, <laughs> all the respect to those who do, but I just don't know anything to add. So your points seem interesting. They do seem to be very paralleled. And, and like, um, as you might've heard in my episode with Stephen Hawkinson uh, in the Sparta series, which if you guys haven't listened to that, oh my God, please do because he talks a lot about how Sparta was used in the founding of a lot of countries. Um, And so, you know, for one, it's more like 2,000 years apart, just like, be that nerd uh, between the Alamo and Thermopylae. But um, what's interesting is, you know, uh, uh, the states used ideas from Sparta in their whole founding fathers. (laughs) I'm not going to say nonsense, but every time I think about the founding fathers, guys, I just you got to give up on the really old white dudes honestly like they don't know all anyway um they but they used sparta a lot and they really like kept sparta in mind in really interesting ways um so I, i would highly recommend you guys listen to that episode if you haven't because i think it adds a lot to this but that is all to say like i could absolutely see thermopylae being an inspiration for the mythologization of the alamo like i that would not surprise me for one second so i think that that's probably a really apt comparison and while i don't know any of the details i'm sure that you're right i imagine there are also lots of examples like that i'm sure that we could come up with examples from world war one world war two you know these these really mythologized battles that become like i mean even like d-day especially in the states right where like D-Day is not as big a deal if you're not from North America. But if you're from North America, it's like it's as if that that was like the only battle that mattered. So it's I think that's probably a good example of that. Like that just these ideas that get kind of mythologized for propagandistic purposes, whether intentional or otherwise, like I don't think necessarily anyone sat down and they were like making D-Day into the biggest thing in the world is going to really benefit us. I think it's more that It's it just kind of is a reminder that everything that we see as important in that respect is all still based on where we're from, what our culture is, what our background is, like what are the things that we care about? And especially in North America, like and I'm saying North America because Canada is absolutely I don't know enough about Mexico. I'm sure you're better than us. But Canada is absolutely like the States in this respect in that like we because North America is this like enormous continent far away from, you know, those to the East and the West, like, we just become like so in our heads about everything. Like as if everything revolves around us. And and so I think that like Yeah, I think that as much as I don't know anything about the Alamo, I'm sure you're right. And and my knowledge point is like World War II. And I would say that D-Day is a really similar one where we we turned it into this enormously important thing. And that's not to say that it wasn't important in the grand scheme of the war. But it wasn't like the only battle in World War II, right? Whereas it, it's the battle that comes to mind when you're from North America because it's the one that gets emphasized so often. I don't know how this turned into that, but uh, I think that that's a really apt comparison and and I'm sure that somebody has written about that too, you know, but it's definitely a really interesting thing to bring up. and and so thank you um, for for raising that. I'm sorry I didn't answer on Instagram. But it was it was too much to wrap my head around, and I'm so I'm glad I was able to just kind of ramble about it here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for asking these questions. It was really great. Um, I was glad in the end to get enough that I could do this quick little bonus episode answering your questions. I really love doing these question um, and answer episodes, not least because I don't have to prepare as much and I get to just ramble. But like, I really, this is what I talk about on Patreon all the time, because this is basically what I do on Patreon is, is every month I have my patrons ask questions about a certain God or concept, theme, whatever. And I just answer all of those questions. And what that means is that oftentimes like questions lead your brain to think about things completely differently than you would have otherwise, right? Like I think about this stuff all the time, but without prompts from other people's brains that think differently than mine, you know, I'm always going to kind of run on the same lines. Whereas when these questions come up, you just get to look about things in a different way, imagine things you wouldn't have thought of otherwise, and that leads to so many other interesting bits and pieces. So I'm just really thrilled that you guys had all of these questions to ask. And honestly, since I'm at it, you know, like I said, every month on Patreon, I do a really similar thing. They're always really fascinating and insightful, enjoyable, rambly episodes. This month we're doing Hermes, so my listener's gonna ask me any question about Hermes they could possibly imagine, and I just ramble on and on. I absolutely love it. So if that's up your alley, consider becoming a patron. Anyone who pledges five dollars and up gets access to this. And there's always a link in this episode's description but it's also just patreon.com slash myths and there's a lot of back content to listen to too so much bonus let's talk about myths baby is written and produced by me Liv albert michaela smith is the hermes to my olympians and handles so many podcast related things especially in that sparta series gods michaela was a godsend the podcast is hosted and monetized by iheart media thank you all i've already talked about patreon so here we are you are such wonderful nerds. You're the absolute best. This job is so much fun. I cannot thank you enough. Ugh, I am Liv and I just love this shit.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.